Lord Jesus, we do thank you uh, that you are the bread of life and that this word gives us life, Lord. If we follow it, if we obey it, uh, we have life in you. So bless us this morning, Lord, we pray, and guide my tongue as I bring your word. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Well, for the benefit of our guests here today, um, I'll just give you a few words about what we're doing. We've been looking at the book of James, and um, James is a, a very practical book, as you probably remember, and um, is full of wonderful um, wisdom and guidance for leading a Christian life. Now, he is a bit um, bitty, you probably can't remember how it goes, but he would start um, one subject in his book and suddenly flip uh, just a couple of verses perhaps to another subject and then a bit later on go back to his original subject. So what we've done is we've looked at it in a thematic way, choosing various themes, and this is now um, part seven. So we've covered most of it. In fact, we've got uh, today's theme which um, is worldly indulgence. And we've got one more theme, the way I've split the book up, um, to follow, and that will be about prayer. There's very little in James about prayer, but there's enough um, to give us a final talk. So we've looked at, um, if you quickly, well, if you go to James in your Bibles, you can see from the headings the sort of things that we've looked at. We've looked at um, suffering um, under trials, perseverance and suffering under trials. We've looked at wisdom. We've looked um, particularly at uh, taming the tongue and what the tongue can do to relationships, etc. Um, there's one verse in particular that we really um, need to concentrate on. Um, this is chapter 1. Verse 22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And this is what we're trying to be, um, more active in doing God's word. Uh, so we've looked at being doers of the word. Uh, last week, uh, sorry, last month, beg your pardon, we looked at um, faith and works. And uh, we, we looked briefly about the um, controversy over the words that uh, James used in comparison with Paul, for example. But as a fellowship, we believe that there is really no difference between the two teachers, that they both believe that our salvation is through grace alone and that works come following that faith in Jesus. Once we put our faith in Jesus, we will be only too willing and happy to perform good works for his glory. So... Um, today, then, we continue with um, what I've said is worldly indulgence. And um, hopefully we all agree with the, um, the points of teaching that came out of uh, the faith and works passage, which was chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. I feel that today's subject of worldly indulgence follows on quite nicely because... Um, Worldly indulgence is almost the exact opposite of faith and works, or good works, certainly. Um, good works are inspired by God's Spirit, whereas worldly indulgence, if we're involved in it, is inspired by ourself or Satan. So they're like opposites. So just a few words to recap 
on um, faith and works, thinking mainly of, of works, of course. But um, what I said um, just now, our salvation is solely through God's grace and that our faith is a gift from God. We're not going to lose sight of that. And probably the clearest scripture for this statement actually comes from Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And in chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And when we looked at the passage um, in James, he gave us some examples from Scripture. You remember we spoke about um, Abraham and Rahab, and he made it perfectly clear that they had faith and that their works followed that faith, and that faith without works is dead. And um, James summed up that passage with verse 26, chapter 2, verse 26, with these words, For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Uh, we saw, as I said again, um, that these thoughts were supported by Paul in many times in his letter to um, Titus. I did suggest you might like to read that. Did anyone read it? Well, we quoted about, I think it was about six quotes from Titus that all support the fact that once we're saved, we have to do good works. We can't sit on our butts, if you like, but we must um, show that faith in the works that we do. Um, indeed, again, looking at um, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, verse 10 of chapter 2, says, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, again, last time I also made a couple of allusions to um, fruits of our works, and I quoted um, Matthew 3, 8, well, I quoted the, the verse, I didn't actually say what it said, but we can see that John the Baptist, when he was preaching to those who came to him for baptism, said, bear fruits worthy of repentance, that's Matthew 3, verse 8, bear fruits worthy of repentance. Jesus himself speaks of true prophets being known by their good fruits, that's in Matthew 7, 16 and 17. And as the true vine, Jesus also says in John 15, 5, he who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. And um, again, still speaking to his disciples in chapter 15, verse 16, he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. So that's the sort of background of the works. Now we come to the theme of worldly indulgence. Let us remember that we are called to works of service to God and to his kingdom, but we need to be operating in his spirit, walking in his spirit, seeking our Heavenly Father's guidance as we go. Now, James writes on worldly indulgence from chapter 4, verse 1, 
right through to chapter 5, verse 6. And I've said, with the exception of two verses, um, in chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, um, talk about not judging your brother. So we're going to miss those out today. Uh, we did deal with them previously in a previous talk. Um, so we split the reading into two parts, looking at each chapter separately. So our first reading will be James chapter 4 and omitting verses 11 and 12. So we're going to go James 4, 1 to 10, and then 13 to 17. And I'm reading from the New King James Version. So James 4, verse 1. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure, that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss, that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? But he gives more grace. Therefore he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore submit to God, Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your, heart, your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Now we go to verse seven, uh, 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapour that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Now, as we come to, the, uh, to look at the detail of this passage, let's bear in mind that as professing born-again believers, um, the words of Paul from Romans 6.11 he says, um, likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we're thinking about works of service. Put simply, we could say dead to self and the world and alive for others. So we see from James 4 verse 1, there appear to be quarrels and arguments among the church which is contrary to Jesus' command from John 13, 
34 and 35. I'll read that to you. It says, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. I thought about this um, situation in James 4.1 and it looked to me like uh, the reality of the parable of the wheat and the tares from Matthew 13, although of course those were um, end times that were being um, described there. But it looks like you have a mixture of true believers in the church and some that are not quite there, if you like. So I've said um, the wheat looked like truly redeemed believers and the tares belonging, uh, being those that falsely profess faith in Jesus. And in this case, we're causing uh, the discord that's mentioned. Concerning these wars and fights, James asked the rhetorical question, do they not come from your desires for pleasure? Now, the Greek word used here is where we get our English word hedonism, which simply means the pursuit of pleasure. But it has a philosophical meaning as well, which is seeing pleasure as the chief aim in life. And that seems a far cry from helping others. Verse 2, um, back to James, um, describes the lust for these pleasures as driving them to murder and covet. Now, some interpret the word murder literally, but I think the best interpretation in this context is to use um, murder as a hyperbole for hatred. And I've um, picked out a couple of examples from the scriptures um, to show how I believe that. Um, John the Apostle and Jesus, we can see um, examples from them. In, in um, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verses 21 and 22. I don't know if you want to turn to this. I'll give you time to turn to, to that if you like. Matthew 5, 21 and 22. So Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of the judgment. So you see there Jesus saying that you don't need to murder anyone, but if you're angry with your brother, that's just as bad. In John's first letter, verse, um, sorry, chapter 3, verse 15, he says, whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So again, um, John is um, considering that hate for the brother is like um, murder. Continuing with James 4.2, he tells his readers, you lust and do not have. Secondly, you murder and covet and cannot obtain. And thirdly, you fight and war yet you do not have because you do not ask. And they're lusting and fighting rather than praying. When we look at verse 3 of chapter 4, we see that when they did ask God, they didn't receive because they asked with wrong motives, that they would spend it on their own pleasures. And does that remind you of the prodigal son, I wonder? 
who took his share of the inheritance and wasted all of it. Like the prodigal son, James's readers wanted to gratify themselves rather than help others and please God. Now in James 4.4, he calls his readers adulterous people, which is a figure of speech for spiritual unfaithfulness. Jesus used this term several times against the Jewish authorities of his day, and it would have been familiar to James's Jewish readers. The Old Testament often describes unfaithful Israel, that's the nation, as a spiritual harlot, especially in the book of Hosea. But this blunt and shocking accusation, adulterous people, was intended to awaken the readers to their true spiritual condition, which is what James follows up with. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. A friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. James has in mind, I believe, these professing to be Christians outwardly associated with the church, um, but holding on to an affection for the evil world system. And we might describe this as having a foot in both camps. Um, if it's starting to ring any bells with anyone, we've got some repentance to do, haven't we? Um, remember Jesus' words from the Sermon on the Mount. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be loyal to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. So let's not be lured away from God by the pleasures offered by this evil world system, which is after all controlled by Satan. Let's not even be on familiar terms with the world system or adopt the world's set of values. Let's be wholly surrendered to God, his word, his will and his kingdom. We have a stark warning from John's first letter to anyone who may say, um, shall we say, flirt with the world. Um, 1 John 2, you might like to look this one up. 1 John 2 verses 15 to 17. John, I don't know if you remember my talks from John, um, John's letters, but again, he was one, one of the um, people that really thought if Christians weren't doing what they should have been doing, were they really Christians? Were they really born again? Um, that's what we have to ask ourselves. Are we um, trying to have one foot in each camp? Are we totally obedient and submitted to God's word and his will? So in 1 John 2, 15 to 17, John says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. So that's the wonderful promise that we have if we can be obedient. But we've got the Holy Spirit, haven't we? Now returning again to James chapter 4 and verse 5, James writes, Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us 
yearns jealously. This is a difficult verse. Various translations have been suggested. Um, the NIV, I don't know if anyone's got the NIV here, but that um, be, will be different, and possibly other versions of the, the Bible, um, refer to the spirit here with um, a small s, referring to man's spirit, whereas the New King James Version has spirit with a capital S, signifying the Holy Spirit. And the New uh, International Version offers... <laughs> It offers an alternative translation. I can't remember what it says, but there's a footnote. Right. So, um, personally, I prefer to follow the scripture that God is a jealous God. That's in Exodus 20, verse 5, and again in 34, 14. God is a jealous God, and that he has a jealous longing for his people. So, with respect to this verse in James 4-5, I prefer the interpretation that it's God's Spirit who dwells in us and he jealously desires the devotion of his people, us in other words. And we're told also, aren't we, by Paul, that our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit and we're not our own. We were bought at the price of Jesus' blood shed upon the cross then we should be exclusively um, in a position to glorify God with our whole being because we are his. That's from 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. You can find that um, scenario. Now, James 4, 6 again. Uh, James here quotes from Proverbs um, chapter 3, verse 34 to sum up the human problem, which is pride and the solution which is humility together with God's grace. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The proud then wants their independence and insist on satisfying their own desires for pleasure. When we show humility, we are willing to be dependent upon God for all things and willingly submit to his will for us. In addition to this, we need God's grace, of course, to meet the high standard of wholehearted love and devotion that the Lord demands from his people and to resist the appeal of the world. But he, the Lord, gives more grace, it tells us. And um, I'd thought of um, the verse in Hebrews 4.16, uh, the Lord's grace is infinite, and um, the writer to the Hebrews says, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, in the next uh, four verses, verses 7 to 10 of chapter 4, James spells out that humility is the cure for worldliness. And he gives us, if you look carefully, Ten Commandments. Now, we're going to read these verses again. Look out for the ten imperative verbs, they're called, or commands, which is a way of calling for an immediate response and a positive action. So, seven to ten, we read these again. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. 
Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. So the Ten Commands are submit to God, resist the devil, draw near to God, cleanse your hands, purify your hearts, lament, mourn, weep, turn your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom and humble yourselves. So just running through those, submission to God is surrendering our will to him, which in turn leads to obedience. And this is uh, talking about taking up our cross daily and following him, I believe, being dead to the world. When we resist the devil, he will flee from us because he is a defeated foe. John again in his first letter, chapter 3, verse 8, writes, For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. So he's a defeated foe. And again, John says that when we are in Christ, in 1 John 4, 4, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. We have the victory in Christ. When we draw near to God, he will draw near to us. Because as we saw earlier, he jealously wants and yearns for our devotion. Again, we may envisage the prodigal son returning to his father after squandering his wealth. His father immediately forgave him and rejoicing said, for this son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Um, the two commands, cleanse your hands and purify your hearts, both have Old Testament connotations and likely refer to here as recognising and confessing our physical sins, as well as our inner thoughts, motives and worldly desires of the heart. And the next four commands are all to do with repentance, a repentance shown by grief and misery. And these um, characteristics may seem a bit untypical of a Christian. We're meant to be full of joy, aren't we? But we must remember that James was addressing those who had a burning desire for worldly pleasures. The final command, to humble yourselves, summarises the previous nine commands. Here the specific form of humbling is that of repentance for the sin of chasing after the pleasures of the world. These people should have been loving God and obedient to his commands. Now, making oneself low in the presence of a mighty, holy God is a general biblical principle and can be seen by a couple of examples. Uh, Matthew 23, 12, uh, Jesus says, And whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. An example for you from the Old Testament, Micah 6, 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do, to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Now, we miss out um, 
verses 11 and 12 and look at verses 13 to 17, which concern arrogant self-sufficiency rather than trusting in God and depending upon him. So let's just read these few verses again. 13 to 17. This is about boasting or not boasting about tomorrow. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapour that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Now, this section is characteristic of worldly wisdom, which excludes God's wisdom and plans. James was probably addressing Christian businessmen and castigates them, not for making business plans, but for making business plans without reference to God. They appear confident in these uh, words that they can go when they like, where they like, for as long as they like, trade and make money. James brings them back to reality with the words, you do not know what will happen tomorrow. Heavenly wisdom from Proverbs 27.1 tells us, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. I was also reminded, it's not quite the right uh, context here, but I was reminded of the um, parable of Jesus and a certain rich man, it's called, uh, where his crop had been um, plentiful and he had no room to store his crops. So he decided to build bigger barns and take things easy to eat, drink and be merry. But God said to him that very night, your soul will be required from you. So we don't know what the future brings. We cannot control the future and our lives are in God's hands. James points to the transitory nature of life using the example of an early morning mist which is burnt away by the rising sun and gone by midday. And James says, follows that in verse 15, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. Again, I thought of heavenly wisdom from Proverbs, uh, chapter 3, verse 5 this time. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. Amen. And another one from 16.3, Commit your works to the Lord and your thoughts will be established. So no Christian can live independently of God. For believers to leave God out of their plans is an arrogant assumption of self-sufficiency, as we see here. In verse 16, James points out that the businessmen's arrogance is boasting, and because God is not in their plans, all such boasting is evil, or you could read worldly. In verse 17, James seems to be saying, now that I have pointed out the error of your ways, 
you have no excuse in not including God in your plans. And if you do so, it is a sin. Okay, we look now at chapter 5, verses 1 to 6. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your, your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the labourers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out, and the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of, of Sabaoth. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in the day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the just. Notice that murdered again. He does not resist you. So once again in this passage, James appears to be addressing some readers who are either weak in their faith, have wandered from the faith, or had no real living faith in the first place. I think we have to decide, each one of us, as you see fit. Um, similar to those that he calls adulterers in James 4.4, these people appear to be associated with the church, but their real God is money. James is not condemning all rich Christians, but only those who misuse the money and the resources that they're blessed with. And remember here that being rich is relative, of course. Um, if we give generously out of what we have, then I'm sure we're doing the right thing. Um, if we're stingy in our giving, like this man that wanted to fill his barns and keep it all to himself, then it might be a different um, kettle of fish, as they say. So as long as we're generous with what God's given us, hopefully we're doing his will. Now, interestingly, uh, for those um, rich, he does not, um, sorry, for the rich that he does condemn, he offers um, no words of, of encouragement to repentance. Verse 1 says that their miseries are coming upon them. It seems as if they're beyond God's mercy. Now, may we never be like this. Um, and James brings four charges against these rich people. The first is in verse 2, that of hoarding. They've so much wealth stored up that it's corrupted and their garments are moth-eaten. In Bible times, wealth um, consisted of commodities such as grain and oil and costly garments and money. And it seems that the rich had so much food and clothing stored up, which was not being consumed or used by themselves, that it was going to waste. This was pure greed, which of course is idolatry, which is sin. With regards to money, verse 3 refers to their silver and gold being corroded. These uh, precious metals do not corrode, of course, but they tarnish when they lie idle for a long time. And this again speaks of the rich having far more than they could ever use. Their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Eat your flesh like fire is a graphic way of saying 
that their greed will result in their own destruction. You have heaped up treasure in the last days shows that James had the future judgment in mind and it could be a way of saying that the rich were living as if Jesus was never coming back. The second charge against the rich in verse 4 is keeping back the wages of their labourers. I'm sure you all know that the day labourers in Bible times relied on receiving their wages at the end of each day to enable them to feed their families. And without being paid, the family were without food and sustenance. Now Leviticus 19.13 forbids this practice. It says, The wages of him who is hired shall not remain with you all night until morning. So it was wrong to hold back the wages. And it says, Their cries reached the ears of the Lord Almighty, or the Lord of hosts, that's the Lord of Sabaoth. The third charge in verse 5 is that the rich have lived in pleasure and luxury. These words convey the meaning of an easy life, extravagant and wasteful and self-indulgent. The day of slaughter is again a reference to the day of judgment. Just like fattened cattle, completely unaware of their impending destruction, the rich had fattened themselves. Now, a very serious question. Do we see any comparison here with our own lives? Do we need to examine ourselves? The fourth and final charge is that the rich have condemned and murdered the just. He does not resist you. This probably means that the rich were guilty of attacking not only a righteous person, but a person who was also perhaps defenceless or else refused to fight back. The word used for murder here is the same word used in James 4.2. And as I said there, it's, um, some interpret this literally, but the best interpretation seems to be that of destroying a person's life. By example, um, dragging them, dragging the poor through the courts, as in James 2.5, we can read about that. Or also possibly um, character assassination. Um, spreading rumours about people that aren't true, that destroys their standing within um, a body of people. Now, in conclusion, I'd like to encourage all of us to be more avid readers of God's Word so that we can know God's Word and be more avid doers of God's Word and therefore His will. When we read the scriptures, let's look for um, these imperatives or commands that we see in James 4, 7 to 10, for example. Ten commands in four verses. So we've got a lot to do, haven't we, to be obedient to God's word. And let's remember that all scripture is God-breathed, and therefore this mighty God that we worship is talking to us through his word. Are we listening? Are we doing is our faith expressing itself in good works and bringing glory to God? Or are we somewhat self-indulgent and have one foot in the world? Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus, the living word. We thank you, Lord, for forgiveness. We thank you that you've cleansed us through the blood of Jesus. We thank you for all the blessings that we enjoy 
when we are obedient, Lord. And we thank you most of all for your Holy Spirit, Lord, at this time, giving us power to be obedient, to follow you, to do your will. Help us, Lord, fill us afresh each day, Lord, we pray, that we may walk in your spirit and bring glory to you. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.